Open Session. This is Patrick, and glad you're listening, glad you're here, glad you're healthy, hope everybody is doing okay. Yeah, I've got, uh, it's very funny, feeling optimistic because i uh, got my vaccine, both shots, and now it's open in New York State to 30 and older. Next week, everyone will be eligible, seems like, so that's great. Also, just talked to Abby Marcus, my friend, and uh, Managing Director of Vampire producing director, actually, had a title of managing director, but really was a producer. We talked about that during the conversation. She's uh, It was a great talk we had this week. Excited to share it with you and help grow Vampire Cowboys and actually just talking about the journey of that and finding it. It was great to have the conversation with her to talk about how producers help shape the artistry of a project. And for anybody who's interested in the business administrative side of things, it's it's really great. But also just love the history of VC and all of the work that Abby does. And her husband, Quee, co-founder of Vampire Cowboys, also wrote Raya, was one of the writers on Raya, the Disney movie that just came out, which is excellent. So the conversation was great. And, and I also just want to say about going back to the optimism is I had, I just got back from two projects. One was San Francisco, where I directed a show in a theater, and then we filmed it on a three-camera live edit. And that was great to be in the theater a year later. You know, last year at this time, we shut down the theater and moved to Zoom on a production right before tech. And this one rehearsed on Zoom and then went to rehearse in the theater in tech. And it was, was so good to be back in in the building and just be able to collaborate with people and talk to the lighting designer, the sound designer about notes and, and um, ask their opinion and be in the same room. And it just felt lovely and like being home again. And then just came back this week from Wells College where they did Leah Romeo's Greek Tragedy, the Farms College Collaboration play, and they did it on stage. The actors wore clear masks, which worked really well. And there was about 50 people socially distanced in the audience and was talking about it with my friend Matt at Center College about, you know, what I missed about how was it to have a live audience. And what was great that I have not gotten in the year was to see people after the show and to see that they were moved and affected. And, you know, it's one thing to hear it in the chat and get an email or do the online talk back, but to actually see people talking to one another or coming up to you afterwards and saying, what they appreciated about the show and you could see that they were affected. It was it was just great. It reminded me like, yeah, that's it. The live experience and part of the live experience is the shared experience and, and seeing how they were affected as well as I was affected. The production was great, but but the unique part of it was the live audience. So it was really, really grateful and it gives me hope that we will all be back in shared communal spaces soon. Actually, hard to go back to Zoom after having two in-person experiences, but for a little while longer. But I think this summer we're going to start to get together and uh, just want everybody to get their vaccine so we can all create safely together. But in the meantime, I'm excited to share with you the great conversation I had with my friend Abby. And, and with that, play ball. Orchard Project actually two years ago. Um, while I, it was kind of like my side gig while I was still working at uh, at CalArts, and so I was lucky enough to be able to get to go to a uh, to the full Orchard Project summer experience when we had one, um, and then last summer we of course pivoted to um, online, and this summer will again be digital. Yeah, it's funny, right? It's borderline. What I feel like people starting in April are sort of like, oh, are we going to be outdoors? Are we going to be in person? Are we going to stay online? Yeah, it was, that was a, we, we talked about that substantially, um, you know, but one of the real driving um, decisions, well, there was a number of driving factors, but um, when we were having the conversations, our partners up in Saratoga weren't feeling like this, they were going to be ready this summer to be open. I mean, it was, it, and again, no one has a crystal ball. We were, we were having these conversations in like December and November because like we need to ramp up. And I mean, the other thing is, is that it's very hard for us to raise the kind of money we need to support in-person programming in the summer in this not gathering in-person environment. Um, you know, we have a very specific kind of funding base for the Orchard Project um, and, um, and it's very hard to figure out how to coalesce that around like online programming 
And you say very specific, meaning that's what they support, that's what they get excited about, or how you meet them to get the money. The, the, the events that we provide them, I think, are the things that get them excited because we don't do any other outward facing programming. Everything else is internal um, artistic development because we're not a producing organization. So um, Ari and I, uh, Ari specifically always talks about, we're like not a direct consumer organization. Like we don't have a product that's out in front of people. Our product is very much behind closed doors. And so those fundraisers are really opportunities for our donors to see behind the closed doors um, or like opportunities for them to see the finished products what is uh, that other people are producing of the work that we are supporting down the road and that is very hard to do right now yeah yeah no that is a challenge funny the farm is very similar yeah exactly invested in the future of people and then we had our most successful year of plays that were developed you're going to get produced and then that didn't happen (laughs) Mm. and it is i was yeah thought oh this will be the biggest year being able to profile what we actually, the product. And same thing for Orchard Project. Last summer, we served more artists than we've ever been able to serve because access through digi- through the digital um, format was much more um, widely accessible than getting to Saratoga, which is, you know, cost prohibitive for folks. It is location prohibitive for folks. Um, and so it is time prohibitive for folks, you know, taking off uh, 10 days out of your life to be able to go and work on something is a luxury. It's a privilege. And not everybody has that. And so, or has collab or has the ability to pay collaborators to do that. So being online actually made the programs widely accessible. And like, and then we're really looking forward to that being the case again this summer is like, we can just serve so many more artists, but the, the funding doesn't match, the, you know? crazy it is i feel like the funding it's a challenge that i have predicted is going to hit the farm in september so anybody listening who'd like to support the orchard project or the farm feel free now's Um, the time now's the time but it is true like i imagine like oh that's when i'm going to get hit is next fall because we were able to pivot but it's also not able to keep people engaged in the way that we've always kept the the community not the artist I'm engaging artists, but not community as much. And uh, it is such a big part of it that you lose track of it. Um, I am sure that a person in your position does not lose track of that. No, I mean, something we were, we were very fortunate last year um, at the top of the pandemic, we like eked out our big fundraising gala. It happened on March 9th in New York. And then like the city shut down like the 12th. Yeah. Like I, I flew in for from California. We did like this whole like in-person thing at Prince George's ballroom. I stayed for a day or two. I flew out. Um, and then, and we were very lucky that like there was no cases that happened because of that. Like we really just like got it in like just under the wire. Um, but, um, and that allowed us to really keep on a full staff for last summer. Um, and even more robustly than we would have if we were up in Saratoga. Um, and really focus on paying our staff and and uh, getting rid of the application fee for the liveness lab and all of these other great resources we were able to provide. But this year, without with the lack of a real in-person fundraiser, we've done some smaller online fundraising events, but it's just not the same thing. How did you start with your enthusiasm for the the management side? Oh boy. I mean, like that goes way back to like high school. Like I was like, I was all in. I was like, I want to dance. I want to act. I want to sing. And then I got into like high school and I went to public school, but we had a very um, robust and competitive arts program in this public. Very lucky to have that. Um, But um, my theater teacher, I remember my my freshman year, very looked me straight on and said, this is not for you. You're not meant to be on the stage. And I was like, heartbroken. But like, you know, when you're like 14 and you're like, this is my life stream. And he's like, you're not as talented as, you know, person B over there. You might want to rethink this. Um, so I, I pivoted in high school. I, I moved into backstage work. I did a lot of technical theater and stage management. And that's kind of what I did all through my undergrad. I'm going to be a stage manager. I'm going to live that gypsy theater life where I like go on tour and go from regional theater to regional theater. And like, that's going to be my livelihood. Um, and when 
um, I had spent a couple of summers working like some box office gigs in my local hometown theater. Um, and when I got out of undergrad, I immediately took a stage management internship at the Shakespeare Theater in DC, which was like a year long program. And I quickly found out how much A, I was not into classical theater. It was just not my jam. Um, and B, um, how boring this pace of professional stage management is outside of an academic setting. Because all I had done was high school, I mean, in summer stock, like where you're changing over shows every two weeks. And then you get into like professional theater where you're like in a rehearsal hall for six weeks on Coriolanus, which made me want to like pull my eyes out. And then you're like in a run for like another eight weeks of Coriolanus. And like you're, and you know, and then you're, for me, the stage management intern, like a fourth man on a stage management team, fourth person down, I was, you know, I was basically like deckhand right, you know, and like I, I ran guns around and, and backstage for this production. And like, I was like, oh, maybe this isn't what I want. Maybe this isn't like, I love being in the rehearsal room. I love the process. How do I like, and I love the, the process of the audit. Like I love all the process things, but what I don't love is like repeating that process over and over and over again ad nauseum. Um, and so when the theater that I was working at in the summer, my hometown theater called me up in the middle of my internship and said that the box office manager was sick and couldn't open the theater for the summer. And could I come back? And cause I had been like the most senior staff at the, in that position, could I come back for the summer? Um, and I like jumped at the opportunity to leave the Shakespeare theater. I was like, okay, great, I'm out of here. See you later, bye, I got a job. Um, and I went back there and then it was right at the time where that theater was transitioning from being a summer organization to being a year round organization. And so I stayed on for the summer and they offered me a, a year round position um, as they were building up their first year round staff and have in offices, et cetera. Um, and I was working like development and box office, like individual giving, database management. And I was like, I kind of love this. So when they offered you a job, they, school. when they offered you a job, they offered you a job to like join, not one position, but like join the team. Yeah, and, totally, uh, totally, totally. And it was, it was a little, I mean, it was a very long running institution, but a very much of a startup energy, new, new artistic leadership. A lot of new board members were on and they were, they had this vision, um, you know, it was uh, Joanne Woodward and uh, Paul Newman, and Joanne was the artistic director at the time. And she really had this vision for how to make it like a year round regional theater space from this, what was this like theater, Summerstock Theater in a Barn. Um, and, uh, and it was really an engaging time to be a part of that, that team. And then I was like, how do I get from being, you know, the, the relief pitcher to being, you know, the starting pitcher? And that, that job was really, you know, that, that was really what sent me back to grad school. And, and did you did you go for specifically for management for managing director art what what did you go to um, the program that I went to at NYU was in performing arts administration um, so it wasn't specifically theater management which was nice um, I had there was a ton of folks in the program who were studying music management and museums and orchestras and all these kind of great um, other fields, dance, and they were kind of come from all these other fields in theater, which was a lovely, illuminating, eye-opening experience for me since I'd only been like very hyper-focused on theater for most of my um, young adulthood. Um, but it was basically nonprofit management and it was kind of like half of an MBA. You took half your classes with the Stern School um, in the MBA program and then the other half were uh, specifically about performing arts management and nonprofit management. It was cool. It was a great program. Yeah, it's actually, you know, it is, it's great to hear that it was both an eye-opening, because I know that you've gone outside of theater a little bit. Um, a little bit. But one of the reasons, you know, besides, you know, being a big fan, but one of the reasons I want to talk to you actually is because of, um, I, I was interested because I also know that you are interested in the creative part of it. And I'm curious in that training, in the education part, when they were talking about arts administration, do they talk about the role you're playing in facilitating the art? Not in my program, which was actually really sad. Um, and it's one of the things that I was really excited about um, joining the team at, and faculty at CalArts when I started mm -hmm. teaching there uh, three years ago was 
um, that program, and I don't know if it's because it's Cal Arts is an art school, I have a feeling it's probably that, but that program really is focused on uh, the producers and the administrators role, um, both in their administrative skills, but also in the um, artistic aesthetic of that position. And so, uh, you know, along with Megan Carter, um, and now Rachel Scandling, I was able to really put together a, uh, a curriculum and a pedagogy that supported both the nuts and bolts skills of how to be an administrator, you know, fundraising, uh, kind of nonprofit and for-profit so structures, grant writing, legal issues, all of those kind of hard skills. And then also the soft skills of artistic aesthetic, how to, how to create a vision, how to manifest a team, how to lead a process, um, which are all kind of like those soft intangible skills that I didn't learn in grad school. I learned when I kind of got out in the world and was like, oh, this is what I enjoy about <laughs> being an artist um, and, uh, and being an administrator and so, and how I can bring my sensibility to it. But like, I think when I was in grad school, those, those kinds of conversations were traditionally in like dramaturgy programs, not administrative programs. And I think more and more now we're seeing a blur in a good way between um, administrative programs and, and drama and traditional dramaturgy programs Which to create these producers, basically. You're smart, right? Because if you were going to go to the Stern School of Business and, you know, you could make a lot of money. So the people who want to do arts administrative, probably have a passion for that. And you would think for the arts or for mm -hmm. whatever nonprofit world they want to go into, they're mission driven. And you think if you're mission driven, how do you support the mission? And also whenever I've talked to and I, managing directors and artistic directors, you know, it's that team of like, how do we make this shared vision possible? You know, and it has yeah. Just as I mean, like managing director is like a weird title that doesn't always sit comfortably for me. Like I, I think in, like I took it when I started with Vampire Cowboys because I was so eager to like get that karate belt in my career. Like I just wanted it on my resume so badly. But like over the years, as I developed that company, I, I started like backslashing it with producer because that was really what my role was. Yes, I did all of the operational things that a managing director does traditionally in a theater, but I also had a huge hand in the producerial. Like I was cultivating an audience, a brand identity, uh, an artistic process. All of that was part of what I was bringing to that organization and the building of that organization. That's producerial work. I don't think people realize what producer means. Like I think managing director, it's funny. I think of it in, the, in an institution. If I were to think of Manhattan Theater Club or Hartford Stage, I know that the managing director does a lot of hard business stuff, but is making that vision possible, right? I know that. But I think the way you're describing producer is interesting because I think sometimes people aren't realizing how artistic and creative that role is. You're like, oh, you're producing, you're facilitating the director and the writer. And it's like, no, you're shaping the whole, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when I think of producing, I also think of like, you are integrally part of putting together the team, right? You are integrally part of the process of drafting the folks that are going to be, you know, for lack of a better um, analogy on the field with you, right? So um, in the case of, of Vampire Cowboys, it was like, well, you know, I had two artistic directors, one was a writer and one was a, a director, but there's a whole other team to build around them. And that is the design team the cast, the stage management team, like the whole company needs to be built. And like, that is what was really, a, like, um, I feel like part of what my role was as a producer. I mean, I, as a managing director, I wouldn't sit in auditions. As a producer, I do. Right, and as a managing director, you're maybe not having a voice about the graphics, you know, but. Uh, that depends on the theater. I mean, some theaters, some organizations put man the marketing department as like a shared responsibility of managing director and artistic. Some folks leave it solely under artistic. It kind of really depends on, on the organizational structure. But yeah, definitely um, for a producer, especially when you think of like 
you think of like commercial producers, I'm putting bun, I'm, no one can see my bunny ears, but here's my bunny ears. Um, when you think of commercial producers, you really do think of those folks who are in charge of like the soup to nuts imaging of how the entire show is presented to the public. When did you meet Quee and when did that become Vampire Cowboys? And not the when did you meet necessarily, but my real question is, did you already have a relationship with Quee and his work when Vampire Cowboys started? Or did you, how'd you come to BC? Uh, well, Quee and Robert, who's the other co-artistic director, um, started Vampire Cowboys when they were in grad school at OU, so before I met them. So Vampire Cowboys existed first, and then the three of us existed together. So they kind of, they moved to New York together after grad school, and they did this one show in the Midtown International Theater Festival um, called uh, Stained Glass Ugly, which Kui will hate me for actually even mentioning the name of that show out loud because it's like a non-canon piece as we think about it. Um, but uh, they did this show, and I had met Kui um, because he had come to rent uh, rehearsal space um, at uh, Art New York, and I was working there after grad school um, for his fight studio. So he invited me to see his show. I went, I was like one of three people in the audience. The other two people were Martin and Rochelle Denton who used to run uh, the review site uh, nytheater.com. They were there to review it. Um, and, um, and it was completely empty, um, but the show was so much fun. Like the show was great. And I walked up to them afterwards, you know, uh, thinking like, hey, we're, we're friends. You've rented space for me. We kind of know each other. I came to see your show. Let me tell you like what I think. And I was like, your show's great you're really not producers, but your show is really good. Let me help you. And like, and then we just, you know, we ended up just hanging out, living in the same neighborhood, running into each other all the time. And like slowly he and Robert decided to trust me that their thing could be a thing, that Vampire Cowboys could be a thing. And, and then we kind of built a, a company from there. But the, the artistic bones of Vampire Cowboys started before I got there. So that's actually, I, I wanted to, phrase that I learned around VC origin story. Um, yes. Part of the origin story, a little bit of your relationship to it, because I'm also really, you know, it, it went on for more than 10 years, but at least 10 years of great success and, and, and building a brand and, and building an audience. And I'm curious because I think a lot of people start the idea of starting their own company to create their own work. I'm curious what you got out of do. What did that do for you? That that VC really. How did it help you in other places? Because I know while it was growing, you were also part of New York. You were a labyrinth. You were a dramatist guild. You know, other major established institutions while building this. But what did VC and the work of doing that do for you? I mean, it was it was lovely at the time because, you know, I, as I was like working my way up as a administrator in, um, in these larger organizations, um, you know, from, from Art New York to then Labyrinth and, uh, and in here Art Center and the Dramatist Guild and these kind of bigger established institutions. Um, I was also getting to have this like lovely playground in Vampire Cowboys. Like I could take what I liked and what I didn't like about working at these larger institutions and translate it. Like I was kind of learning on my feet and then it was a bit of an emergent process. Like I was kind of taking it in and we were kind of like taking that and building a little bit over here on the side with Vampire Cowboys and trying it out. You know, also I, I mean, Vampire Cowboys would not have existed without the symbiotic relationship of those larger institutions, you know? I mean, uh, we rehearsed our first fringe show at the public because, because of Labyrinth was in residence there and I had a relationship with the public's company management. You know, I, we, we formed a relationship and did shows at Here Art Center because I had had a staff relationship with, with their artistic director and invited her to see the things we were doing at Center Stage, you know, like that was, it all kind of, they were very symbiotic to each other and in a very, very good way. Um, and I would say though, like for those folks who were thinking like, hey, I want to start a company. I think that's to produce my own work. I think that that's great. Queen never wanted to start a company to produce his own work. Robert like actively tried to dismantle us from the inside for the first year because he did not, did not want to, he so badly did not want to do a company to produce his own work. You know, both of them, um, I think humored me for a while when I was like, this is a thing. And they're like, we don't want a thing. We just want regular legitimate, like big theaters to pick us up and like do our thing. 
Um, but I, I think the, the strength that they had, um, the specificity that they had in their work made the, made the idea of making a company around it so, so necessary at the time. Like they needed to, they needed to build the audience to take it to the big theaters. And honestly, it took 16 years of doing that before folks paid attention, you know, in a good way. And then, and then Kui got commissioned by South Coast Rep and then Viet Gone was born. And, but like Viet Gone couldn't have happened without years of us like market testing that aesthetic in New York and showing that it's possible to get good reviews and build an audience and, and be critically successful and also be goofy and irreverent and pop culture infused and, you know, and have kind of a mass appeal, which is a lot of what Queen's voice is. So. No, it's great. And the fact that you consciously or unconsciously knew like, Oh, we should create a company to produce the work because it's one thing if you're going to put up a play and it's, and the director and writer want to have a traditional career, if you're doing traditional yeah. work, sure, go for it. You don't want to form a company, but you're right. You were, you were creating a new art form or a new, a new aesthetic, you know, or genre, genres yeah. to write. I mean, should Richard Foreman have started his own company? Absolutely. Should Lee Brewer have started his own company? A hundred percent. You know, like there are definitely those folks who are, um, we can look back on now with time and history and say, oh, that was a moment where the aesthetic, where the art form changed and it wasn't going to change on the stages of Manhattan theater club and roundabout first get there eventually. And when it does, everyone will be like, Ooh, revolutionary new theater because no one pays attention to that other stuff that's happening in the smaller stages, but it has to start somewhere. Right. And like, so that was, that was kind of where we were. Like there was, there wasn't geek theater before there was vampire cowboys there. There wasn't um, a recognition of genre theater before that time in the early aughts when we were all working in New York together. I mean, there were other companies who were doing like-minded, aesthetically like-minded work that, you know, that we kind of codified our own little tribe, so to speak. But now it's like, oh yeah, of course, of course a slave play can exist on Broadway or, or a, a Moulin Rouge or, you know, th those things have their roots in that downtown world that, you know, that was coming up in the early 2000s in New York. Yeah. And funny, when did you think, it's interesting about Queen getting commissioned because I'm thinking like, when did you feel that you knew that you, what happened for you that you thought would make the next level where you knew you'd have a career at this or you knew you'd be able to make a way at this or do you... I, I, don't, I still don't know if I have a career. <laughs> okay. Well, I was looking for the thing like that got, I'm like, like, I was looking for the thing that got the next level because I know that it could have been just the fact of getting the phone call to go back yeah. to the box office you know, it's like, oh, I mean, that was, that was a big, that was a big, big step. I mean, um, certainly, certainly I think my first, the first job that I got where I felt like, oh, this is a step in the direction I want to go. Like I was so lucky um, coming out of grad school to have found a home in art, New York. I did my internship there in grad school. Um, I met, and like, it was such a great space to do an internship in because I just, I met everybody in New York theater. Like I just, like they are, they are at the center of the nonprofit landscape in a good way. And like, there was no better way to like understand who everybody was than to sit in Art New York and hear and sit in all these different membership meetings and listen to folks talk and, um, and get to meet people. Um, and so, so when they offered me a position at the end of grad school, I was like, this is great. Not exactly what I want to be doing with my life, but this is really but I love the organization and I love the mission and I want to support it. And so I, I took, um, I took a position with their new, um, rehearsal space and, uh, an office space venture at 528th Avenue, which was now, now does not feel new, but right. was a decade or two ago, a very new thing. Um, and, uh, but it wasn't until I interviewed for the job at Labyrinth actually, that I felt like, Oh, this is the step that my career is taking. Like this is the, and then actually, getting that job like that felt like and doing that work I was like oh this is where I belong like so much art is happening so many artists so many creative people like I think my favorite part of the labyrinth job was not the productions although I love them but was this was the intensive organizing the intensive and being around that creative energy 
was like the best part of my experience with Labyrinth. And like, I actually took a lot of that energy and that was what felt like, oh, you are being imbued with agency. You are being trusted in management and like, and now, and now you are on a, on a pathway. And then I felt like, oh, this is a natural. Now I see where the karate belts are, company management, general management, managing director, producer. And I can kind of follow the, the uh, ball down the, down the line, so to speak. But, uh, but yeah, that was my first, that was my first, I feel like even more so than grad school, the first point where I felt like, oh, I'm off on a career. And the, and the thing that did it, it was in this trajectory. Was that was the empowerment, not only because I, you're, it's funny, I mean, we're, that is the intensive, the two-week retreat of working on 51 plays and having over 100 artists come together just to work. I think it was 70 my first year. I think we did 70 plays in two weeks, my first that's, intensive. That's probably accurate, yeah. And it, um, <laughs> I would say... In, insane um yeah no totally insane like three readings a night insane like nobody should work at that pace but it was great because like you said you everybody was just invested in the work and you were empowered and then you're empowered to figure out how can we make the most of this for everybody and I think that I was I'm glad to hear that that's sort of where you could feel a sense of identity a sense of like calling like oh that's it that's what I want to do yeah, it was that and it was the Barn series. It was like those two things in complement. Like taking that work back to New York and and having these like insane, excited, standing room only audiences lined up outside the public waiting to get in and like being able to like see the work with the energy of the audience, even though it's still in development. Like again, like those were kind of like those natural feeder of like, oh, this is where I want to be. Like I want to be at this at this early stage. Like I and you know, and that kind of was what led me to here and the Dramatist Guild and then later the Playwright Center and these organizations and eventually Orchard Project. Like I don't wanna I, I learned that classics and restaging classics is not super interesting to me. Right. Like let's let's get in a room and explore something and how do I support that exploration? Um, like that was really felt like, oh, that was the creative spark and also like the 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 agency to like take that creative spark forward. And how do you have conversations with like, when you're in the, you know, you've got a job, you're working with Labyrinth and they're housed at the public theater in New York. How do you then, besides forming professional friendships, have that conversation where you say, Hey, I also have this company. Oh my God. I was so, I was so dumb and in my twenties. I didn't even think about like the impropriety of it. I was just like, I'm just gonna ask <laughs> like I, like now now being where I am like 20 years later I would be like okay what's the who's the appropriate person to talk to and what's the appropriate protocol and like should I ask permission first you know but like in my 20s I was like just gonna call up my friends there and like I don't even think I actually I, I can't remember who I spoke to whether it was like house management or production or like, I, or like we, I made so many relationships there that I can't remember whose phone I called to ask about permission for it to eventually get me to the right phone call. But yeah, no, I was so young. I didn't even think like, you know, who's a good person to talk to that I met is, let me see, you know, like, I think I probably would have called George and be like, hey, George. <laughs> okay. I got an idea. You want to come see my show, my, my off off Broadway show at like in the fringe, like with like, you know, I mean, like, I, I literally, like, the, the blissfulness of not, uh, of being blissfully unaware, I think, paid off really well in, in the long run about, about what I could ask for, you know, I, and I always was, I was very transparent, um, less so with Labyrinth, because I didn't really, when I took that job, I didn't really know what Vampire Cowboys was, but every job I took after Labyrinth, I was very transparent that, like, this is a thing I do, it's a part of my life, I you know, in addition to taking the job with your awesome organization, I also have this thing and that I'm growing and nurturing and, um, and it's a big piece of who I am. And so it's almost like, it's almost like starting a job by saying, I have a family and kids and the kids might come with me to work every once in a while because, you know, I don't have daycare all the time. That was kind of my approach with, uh, with Vampire Cowboys. It was like, I was always very open that, that, that this was the thing that fed me artistically and I was excited about it. And I was going to do it in addition to this job, but I was also going to kick ass at doing the job too, that, you know? And do you think having that, that kid, that artistic kid um, also made you sexier for the job? Like, 
because I feel I think I think passion is always sexy. I mean, like I've been in a lot, I've been in a position of hiring a lot of people since since then, and you know, I don't know. I don't, I can't speak for those people who were, who opened the doors for me, but I have to tell you, like, the people I'm excited to open the doors for are people who are passionate about what they do, um, whether that is working in, on projects inside of larger organizations or having side projects um, outside of large organizations. Um, like, I just think passion is contagious. And when people see that you are passionate about something, they understand that you can get passionate about what they do too. And for mission-based organizations, that's, that's like a big piece of the of this too, you know, how, how it all works. So, um, yeah. And when you, because it's funny, I think about when you said you weren't transparent, I thought maybe, maybe it's because you were building lab, but everyone knew it. That vampire. Oh, I know. Once I got in the door, I feel like everybody knew. They I mean, like, I, I deeply, you know, remember bringing Kui around to like almost every party that in every event and, He's like, oh God, I'm just Abby's, Abby's, Abby's boyfriend. And now I'm like, oh, I'm Queen's wife. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, the tables have turned. <laughs> well, I was thinking about it. And it's interesting when you said he got commissioned. Uh, I'm, I'm, this is terrible that I cannot remember the name of the play, but it was at the ontological. And it was, I think the 10th year or something of Vampire Cowboys. And it was the most autobiographical piece to that Oh, Agent G. Agent G, right? It yeah. felt almost like, correct me if I'm, I know that I'll be wrong, but it felt like almost the end Don't be wrong. of Vampire Cowboys in the sense of like yeah. putting an exclamation point on it of like this. It's funny. We thought of it so much as the beginning. Like it felt like, it felt like, it felt like the dawn of the next era. Yeah. Okay. I'll say end of that era and like a step. Yeah. And then it was the step because the next, the next, I mean, you were commissioning other people and there was things happening, but the next visible thing I remember is Vietnam, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that became more of Kui becoming a recognized playwright, writer. Yeah, I mean, well, in between there, he was commissioned um, by the Flea to do She Kills Monsters, which is a huge piece of his. Um, Vampire Cowboys not involved for a whole number of I won't spill the tea reasons, um, but um, but uh, but that piece I think propelled him in in one direction, and then and then Via Gone really propelled him forward even further in that direction. But like Agent G was the start of that. Like there would be no Via Gone without Agent G. No, and I think that's why I wanted to say that, and I don't I I understand that, and that's why I think it was the I don't know how you feel where Vampire Cowboys is, but I felt like that was a culmination of that decade's work or so in a very exciting way. And yeah. it was almost almost nowhere to go except for the direction it seems to have gone. Yeah. Because you, you, I felt like, oh, you got to the core of what you were trying to do. Then at some point you'd have to reimagine the mission because like, oh, we did that. Now let's, now we're, you know, we cured yeah. cancer. Now we have to cure something else. And, um, and, yeah. and, but, but what, what I wanted to ask about it because it was so successful and it did that for him in that way. Do you, do you feel like, oh, that 10 years of work of creating its own genre and branding and everything you did, did it have the same culminating feeling for you and did it do it for you? Sorry, there's literally a, a leaf blower out right behind me. Okay, I think it's gone far enough away now that you won't hear it completely in this thing. Um, did it feel the same way for you? I feel like Agent G felt like it's, by, by far and away, it's my favorite Vampire Cowboys piece. Um, it is the one that I had my fingers in the most dramaturgically. Um, you know, Kui had started to write this um this series of pieces about his family's journey to America. Um, he started in grad school and he wrote a play in grad school and it was produced, it was produced by Mai Yi, um, you know, kind of like in the early days of Vampire Cowboys, I want to say like 03, 04, like just when I was starting out with the company. And, um, but if you, if you went, were to go back and find that play, which good luck, cause I don't know, know if it's in publication anymore, but if you were to go back and find that play and read it, you'd be like, that's Kui, like Kui wrote that. It feels so out of, it feels so not his voice. It was, it's so earnest and it's so like, it, it, it's so in its earnestness, a little sappy and like a little overwrought, you know, and um, 
And so when he when he was commissioned to write the second part of that trilogy um, by uh, by Mayi and Queen's Theater in the Park, and he had to write this the next play, he was really struggling with it because he had come so far as an artist between his grad school self, which was like the earnest student who wanted to please, and who he was in Vampire Cowboys and his actual like 10 years of building work in New York and his voice um, as an artist that as he had discovered it um, over that time. And and he was writing this like really earnest follow-up and he read it and he was just like, and I just remember we, were, we, we had this live workspace in Brooklyn at the time and we were like in the, the apartment side of that space and he was like lying on the couch and I was sitting in the office and and he was like struggling with it and bitching about it and he had a reading coming up at Queen's Day in the Park and he was so pissed off and I was like I was like just just write your version like there's no rule here that says you need to write the grads the earnest version of this thing write it in your voice like do your thing with it and that became Agent G um and that became that particular play and not surprising you know um we ended up producing it and I was really happy what but it, like unlike other vampire cowboy shows that started off with like Robert and Queen and I being like what are two genres that we can like smoosh together or like you know oh here's a great title fight girl battle world let's create a play based on that really weird title like you know like that's how other vampire cowboy shows started their life this one started in a much different process you know um, and, and it, for me it felt like oh it feels like the end of the way that work was generating to begin with, but it felt like the starting of something else, you know? And um, and as, and it was right around that time that Queen and I moved out of New York in the first place, um, the first time we moved out of New York, <laughs> when we went to Minnesota. Um, and part of the reason that I was excited about that was it was a chance to work at the Playwright Center, which was an organization that was doing new play development and supporting artists in much greater numbers than I was doing one-on-one -on -one with Queen. Um, and so I feel like without Agent G, I don't feel like I would have had that itch because I felt like I would have still had something to say in New York, you know? Yeah, I was curious. And then going to the Playwright Center and then you worked at pretty cool organizations, came back to Brooklyn for St. Anne's. And uh, curious what you, what do you think you now as a producing managing director, artist. What do you think you carry with you? And it may be after that experience of Agent G, but what do you think you carry with you into the room and defining the room any way you want that you didn't maybe when you were 20 something? Oh my gosh, I feel like I've, I feel like such a different person than I was in my twenties. Like I, in my twenties, I was so stubborn and headstrong. And I mean, in a lot of those like a lot of those like my way or the highway things are really what got me to where I am now. On the other hand, I don't know if they made me a person that other people really wanted to work with again. <laughs> so looking back, I'm like, oh, what are the better parts of that that I can take forward? I feel like now what I've learned over the course of 10 years with Vampire Cowboys, the thing that I was the happiest about, what I enjoyed the most about that company and why I kept um, doing projects there was because it was such a collaborative process. And I was like, and when I would go into an office, I would be like, this isn't collaborative, you know? And so now I feel like what I've taken is I've melted those two things. And my process now in leadership positions is much more collaborative, much less centralized, centralizing authority and much more giving agency and creating a process that is emergent and iterative and organic to the organization. And like all of those things are skills that I learned from my twenties to now, that is like just the evolution of, of how I've grown and been influenced by the, the art that I've been making around me. Like, you know, like everyone, there's this, always this energy about like, Oh, an arts organization should be like a rehearsal room, right? Like you should, think about running your arts organization the same way we run a rehearsal room. Well, that is like burnout energy. That's like burnout culture because a rehearsal room lasts for like four to six weeks. An organization is there, the, the people in the office are there, you know, 365 days a year, Hopefully, you know, in, in perpetuity. <laughs> yeah, in perpetuity, right? And like you, and so like the, the idea of like giving that kind of like all or nothing energy that you give in the rehearsal room. But there's a, I think there's an underlying thought there that we get, that we miss, which is not like give your all in energy all the time, work 120 hours a week. That's the part of the rehearsal room that we should replicate in the office. No, the part that we should replicate is 
the collaborative nature by which we make art. The fact that inputs and ideas come from a bunch of places, not always the expected one, right? And how do we synthesize those things together to create something moving forward? And like, that's the energy that I want to take into the work I do now and the work I do going forward. Yeah, I think that's great. And I also think that idea in the arts organization of like all or nothing 120 hours, you know, is the burnout is like, right, you, we got to avoid burnout because the people in the organization in the office are the people who sustain the ability to deliver the art. I mean, the burnout factor is real. Like, I mean, I, it's been, it's been a drum I have been beating since I got into a position to be able to have effects and change about it. But, you know, in terms of moving my way up management, but like, I think, you know, the arts are terrible in how we create things like unpaid internships, zero, zero pipelines within an organization for folks who start and in turn to stay with the same organization. Like part of the reason I left Labyrinth, which was like, I, I still talk about Labyrinth as like my heart. Like I loved that organization. I loved working there. I loved the artists. You know, if I could have made a 20 year career at Labyrinth, I probably would have at that time, but there was no place to go. Like what, like there was, there was, it was such a small, like, small organization with small resources that like once I had done all the things I could do in the job I was in and I was ready for like a promotion or advancement I couldn't do that inside of that organization and I had to look outside of it which is like which is a sad shame I think of arts organizations like we don't create the kind of way place where we can grow people who are genuinely you know interested in and and heart in on the mission inside of an organization you know, we also don't imbue anyone with bound, with the ability to set boundaries. You know? And I think that's that, that sense of like, it's a rehearsal room. There are no boundaries. We're all free. But in, when you transfer that to an office setting, it means we're all staying until 10 o'clock. Why aren't you? There's this expectation of that of where you can't say, oh, I have to go pick up my kids from school. I have to go, you know, home and take care of my body because my, you know, like that's, I need a moment to go to a yoga class and like breathe and be outside this office because otherwise it's toxic. You know, and I don't think we do enough of that in arts organizations yet between saying like, recognizing that there's a power dynamic, recognizing that we need to put written policies in place to have boundaries and to allow folks to create boundaries, healthy ones between themselves and the organization to allow them to be successful in their job for more than a year. Yeah, I think that's and that's sorry, no. sorry, you got me out. You get me, you get me out of my soapbox. I'm gonna get on my soapbox. <laughs> uh, I think that soapbox is a good one, and I think it's actually one that I think that is an awareness. I think people knew it, but there seems to be a conscious awareness working towards it now more than before. Even the idea of this is not in the office, but even the idea of getting rid of 10 out of 12 tech days, you know, and like being like, yeah, five day rehearsal weeks and. Yeah, I mean, like, it's all, it's all in the, to the goal of, like, how do we make this field more humane, more accessible, you know, more accessible to all, um, and, and how do we remove things like privilege and, and systemic racism from, from our practices, right? And, like, we might not look at it and say, oh, the 10 out of 12, that is particularly disempowering or disenfranchising to vote to certain communities. But it's time for us to open our perspective up and then see and listen to, to those folks who are saying this is, it's super problematic, right? Like, we, we have to evolve. I'll take the opportunity to ask about that. How, how do you see that in, I know there's a large consciousness in whose stories we tell and what, and, and, and what stories, you know, who's telling them and things. Um, but in the organizational work that you're doing, institutional, CalArts or Orchard Project or anywhere that you've worked with or that you're seeing, how do you think we're addressing the issues? Because, you know, it, it seems silly to say this or obvious, but, you know, just the idea of being able to go to grad school to get a higher degree to work in a field that is not going to pay you that's not going to reward you financially um, by design, you know? Yeah. Also there are, you know, again, like I remember even selecting a grad school. I remember distinctly um, having a conversation with my father 
who is a super dismayed that I wasn't going to like law school or something that was a lucrative field if I was choosing a postgraduate education. But um, but he, uh, you know, he he said, well, why aren't, why aren't you looking at like University of Kansas? They'll pay you for their arts administration program because they had like graduate assistantship set up. And I was like, no, I want to go to NYU or Yale because that's, you know, that's going to cost me a fortune and I'm going to be in debt for the rest of my life, which I paid off my student loans last year, um, finally. But, um, you know, but, uh, but, um, but I, I need to go there because that's the pipeline to the actual career. That's the network I need, you know, and like to, to look back on it now and to hear the privilege that like drips out of that conversation of even being able to consider taking on that amount of time. I was naive at the time. I didn't quite know what I was getting myself into with the debt that I actually took on for grad school. But, um, but, but you know, like Kui had a much different experience with grad school. Like he completely ruled out even applying to Yale because he, his parents were like too expensive, you know, and he went to a school that paid him to go there and he went to, and he got a great education this is nothing again, but he came out and came into New York with a much different pipeline of a, a network than his peers who came out of Yale. And like, that's messed up. Like that's a messed up problem of our, of our industry in general, that we still look to these certain programs that are these so expensive and so selective and so hard and say like, when people are stamped with imbued with that thing, they can be successful. You know, and these other folks have to spend time proving themselves because they've come out of some, you know, something that we haven't heard of before. Yeah, well, that is one of the, you know, not to, that's what the farm, one of the things that I'm working on is, you know, cultivating early career artists who maybe don't have the pedigree for success or what I want to say is creating new pipelines or new pathways and, yeah. um, you know, generating that support to get people into a pipeline, maybe even, you know, yeah. getting a writer into the Juilliard. Yeah, I know. I, I recognize also that pipeline is like a problematic term. I just, I don't know no, the no, better a, term for it, but like. No, I agree with it. I think it's, for me, it, yeah, I say pathways, but it is a pipeline. Um, and, but yeah, and I'm wondering, and I'm hoping as we're having these conversations, not just you and I talking on this podcast, but as the, the awareness is happening, I'm hoping that there's more genuine doors opening and ways of thinking about how we engage people in the work that is as inclusive as possible for for the idea of passion and knowledge and not just you have this yeah. Of approval. Yeah, and I think you know when when I'm when in the conversations I have been in and have been pri privileged and lucky to be in these conversations talking about the uh, the we see you white American theater document and thinking about like how to operationalize that, how to really. Uh, industry-wide take on some of the some of the uh, demands hopefully all of the demands um that uh, that are outlined there you know for my little chunk of the world where i have um some influence in in my organization i'm thinking about like hiring practices like how do we where do we post jobs when we post them what does that job description look like to make folks feel like they are welcome in, in to apply for that how do we break down application barriers? How do we break down how we're looking at resumes? Can I say something? That we are, you know. John Eisner, who is stepping down at the Lark, and I don't know if I said this on the pod before or not. He, we were having lunch one day and he said, oh, we're hiring. And one of the things they're doing is they were keeping the job open for three months. And my first thought was, oh my God, you're gonna be inundated in two weeks. Who doesn't wanna work at the Lark? And what he said was, and I, he's a great guy. Um, but he goes, yeah, but after the first month, we can look at who, what applicants are we not getting and how do we target those, that pool of work, you know, yeah. possible employees. And I thought it, yeah. thought it was so great because I, I was like, right, you don't know who you don't know, but at least you'll find out who we're not getting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we were hiring over the summer. So we, um, we had, created a position like we knew we had a need for this position coming out of the summer of 2019 um uh, when we actually had a in-person residency pro up in saratoga um but we actually didn't get around to actually posting for it and hiring for the position until we were in like april of uh, of 2020 so not only were we in the pandemic but we were uh, post the murder of George Floyd and the uprising and the we see white American theater demands and like we were in that moment in a good way 
Um, and thankfully we had, because we were in that place, we were able to really think about thoughtfully and, and intentionally about the hiring practice for that position, that new position that we were creating. Um, you know, and typically the Orchard Project it has a core, it has a core company, like a core apprentice company for rising uh, college juniors and seniors um, and an intern program and a fellows program. And like those things were typically feeders into whatever staff positions opened up. This was a position that we posted publicly. We disseminated widely through networks that we knew would have um, more diverse outreach than we had. Um, you know, and, um, and we, you know, also it was the top of the pandemic. So we got just a ton of resumes, but again, it's not, it's not just about like taking in a ton of resumes. It's about taking the time to read through all those resumes, not just look and say, oh, Yale, that's in the yes pile. Oh, Podunk University, that's in the no pile. Oh, hasn't yet worked in the field, only done internships. That's in the no pile. Like thinking about like what are actual, what you're actually looking for in a resume and what might be hidden there that you don't know that you're looking for and taking the time to read it intentionally. Like that person that has worked their entire life in the banking industry and now wants to apply to my position might be the perfect person for my artistic position if I'm reading their resume correctly. Yeah. But I won't know that if I don't give them the opportunity to come in and talk to me. You know, that person who has spent their entire life interning at various you know, in various capacities might be the perfect person for my management job. Again, I just need to be able to read the content of their resume. Um, and I think taking that time to actually like recognize my own hiring biases, put them to the side, look for the unexpected, look for the things that catch my attention, not because they are using the buzzwords that are in my job description, but that they are actually speaking the language that I want to be spoken in the job. Like those things are the yeah, you know, part of the hiring process that has changed dramatically. Yeah, allowing yourself also yeah to see the whole person as an individual. Do you have any advice if somebody starting out on this career direction that you would share? Um. Oh gosh, I have so much advice. Like boundaries, make them, set them, talk talk about them, be open about them, have the agency to to trust that that's okay. And if you're working in a place that's not okay, or for someone who doesn't think that that's okay it's not a healthy place to be working in you know um you talk about boundaries because you said it twice you're, you're telling about it because it's not about commitment to job but you i get a feeling that you're talking mm -mm. About, you're talking about hours and and role right like i think it's hours it's role it's um it's it's asking for you know to make carve out space for yourself i mean i worked at you know, um, I worked in an organization where I had um, a, a boss who would text me, call me, email me 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 8 a.m., you know, um, and I was super clear. I was like, listen, I, I, had, I had young kids at the time. I mean, I still have kids. They're not as young anymore, but I had young kids at the time. When I left the job, I had to leave the job because I had another thing that I had to deal with. And, and I will, you know, and, and for my own health and safety, and taking care of myself, I may, because I'm one of those persons who will like roll over and look at my phone, like first thing in the morning. I was like, I can't do that. Like I did, I would not check my email until I sat down at my desk because I knew that all that stuff was just sitting there waiting for me. You know, that the, the being that kind of person who like, I have five tasks left at the end of the day on Friday. So I'm going to send out five emails at six o'clock to everybody that's going to put that task on their plate for the next, you know, like that's not a, that doesn't, create, help create healthy boundaries, right? Because then I'm asking the people below me who are getting the email at six o'clock as they are leaving to either stay and take the time to deal with it, think about it or work on it all weekend, or come into the office panicky first day month, first thing Monday, because now they're behind. Right. 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 Um, you know, and like, and that kind of, and, and setting up healthy space for yourself and being an advocate for yourself and what you need that's healthy and to be expected and should not be punished and should not be looked down upon and should not be penalized. Um, you know, I think that's also what I'm talking about in terms of boundaries. It's being able to say, you know, I need a day for myself and I'm taking a day this week and taking a day off. 
it's being able to say, I worked until 11 o'clock on your gala last night and I'm coming and I need to, you know, take that time tomorrow morning. I'm not going to be in at 8 a.m. You know, and it's also being able to say, you know, I see that you're asking me to move, you know, all of these boxes in the theater. That's not really my job, but I can help you find the person to move those boxes because that is my job. You know, and and being able to have the agency to say like this is not this is not what you exactly told me that this was going to be, because um, I I feel like again, in theater we have this sense of like all hands on deck. I do too. I mean, I know I have asked for it before as I have been managing things. Um, you know, I mean, like in the early days of Vampire Cowboys, we all like got together and painted the set together. I would never do that, and I would never ask my actors to do that now. I would never ask anybody in the administrative team to do that now. You know, um, I, it's my job as a producer and administrator to find the resources to make that happen. The resources aren't the folks that I've hired for other positions. Yeah. Anyways, that's my boundaries diet, my, my full boundary soapbox. Well, I think the boundary <laughs> soapbox is good because I think there's also something when you're starting out, you know, every once, once a year, if you're supposed to move a box, that's fine, right? But early yeah. on in the in the career, you know, or early on in a company, yeah, you're all painting the set, you're all doing things early on, you know, and, but there's to know where that boundary is. And when that's, you know, when, not when you need to set them, you set them, but when they are, they, they change as we grow. Yeah. You know, and just to, yeah. to allow, but you need to set them to be allowed to grow because yeah. my People have often said, you know, people are be happy to let you work for free as long as you're willing to work for free, you know? <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, I think the other things that I would say are, at, and what I've, used, what I've said all the time, all the way since my early labyrinth days, it's like, if you are enjoying something, somebody's artistic product, hang out, chat with them, make friends, talk to people, you know, um, it's so much it's it's so much more about the community like you know i i have put i have recommended people for jobs in other companies that i don't end up hiring for my own company but that i met through the process because they came because even though they weren't right for my thing that doesn't make them not lovely amazing individuals and so like i'm always kind of trying to lead with the idea of you never know where that next thing is going to that next experience opportunity your new best friend is going to be. And so we have to lead with every conversation with kindness and, and open heart and engagement and talking, you know, talking to people as human beings, as individuals, as equals, no matter where they are, because that person that I, you know, interviewed for that entry level position 10 years ago, might be my boss next year. Right. Thank you, Abby. Uh, so, so good to get to talk to her. And I just loved, I loved the thing at the end that she was talking about, about boundaries, because I think we're getting better at it, actually, in the theater. And there's a consciousness about it. And there used to be this, it was just really good, because obviously, the I like the part that she talked about in the office being there 365 days a year. And, you know, you can't give it that, you know, that leave it all on the field thing every day, every minute, every hour, you know, and you have to, you know, pace yourself and also figure out, you know, when does everybody have to be there at all times and what is that job? And but I think it's really important. I think we're getting better at it. And I think one of the things the pandemic has done is sort of slowed people down to realize like, you know, we're all busy because we're at the Zoom. But if you, it's, there's also perspective, like we, we, not did for me is not to allow yourself to get overwhelmed with things and that if we're all working together we can work in a healthy way and I hope we carry that I think we were doing that work people have talked about taking out 10 out of 12s of tech and things like that and looking at a more manageable work level but I think I want to continue that out as the pandemic starts to come to a close to keep a sense of balance about it and um, yeah it was just really nice really grateful for the conversation I'm glad hearing I also liked what she said at the end about everybody you interview could be your future boss. And it's true. I know that a lot of the people I've met just going to the schools who are, you know, people who are production stage managers of the College Collab, I'm like, oh, those people are going to be running things very soon. And, and I loved it because I thought about 
we're all in the game together. You know, we're all in this. It is a long journey. And yeah, the people who you're meeting right now who are starting out 10, 20 years from now are going to be, you know, people who are creating opportunities for you. And that is a good thing to remember because it is a long game. I was talking to students at Wells and one of them asked me, I forget what they asked, but something about, you know, interviewing and whatever. And I was, or how do you stay in contact with people and let them know what you're doing? And I thought, that is one of the things that we do is we is to stay in contact because not everybody's going to get to see your show. Not everybody's going to show up, but they are going to remember you and that we are in this. We can't, you know, we all come together really intensely for a project and then we go away and then we come back for a project and um, with different people. But if you, you know, but over time people remember each other and we're all in this industry together. And that's what I, I love and what I'm, you know, we're in it in the sense of, you know, if you haven't seen somebody like I haven't seen Abby in a while, that's a different thing, I guess, because we're really friends. But uh, but if you haven't worked with somebody in a while, they're still keeping track of what you're doing and they're paying attention as long as you are making sure to share the work that you're doing. And I just love the fact that these are long-term relationships in this industry. And as Abby pointed out, sometimes those relationships shift in the dynamic, but that's why you want to be good to everybody. So grateful to talk to everybody and... Uh, Really glad to have the conversation with Abby and continue to do well. Sign up for the vaccine as soon as you can. And I am looking forward to being in a theater and seeing your work soon. And with that, we're out.